You're listening to episode 165 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 24th of September 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. How are you doing today, Steph? I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm feeling a little bit tired. We had a, a lovely staff gathering last night, the first in a quite a long while. So it was lovely to see you all in person outside. Uh, but yes, maybe a bit more tired than usual. <laughs> not quite as lively as your normal self. No, no, I would say not. This staff gathering, which doesn't happen very often these days due to a massive raging global pandemic. Yep. But this was to say goodbye to one of our long-term colleagues who is heading off to new adventures. But fortunately, mm. her one last hurrah is that we actually have her on the podcast today. I know. How well planned was that? Oh, beautiful. Seamless. Amazing. So yes, we have Alice Kent on the podcast talking to Carol Angier. And Carol has written a biography called Speak Silence in Search of W.G. Sabled. And Alice Kent is a massive, massive fan of Sable's writing. That is very true. And was basically the perfect person to do this interview. So anyone who's not familiar with W.G. Sabled, he wrote books including The Emigrants, Austerlitz and The Rings of Saturn, and was known for mixing fiction, history, autobiography and photography into quite an unusual and unique mixture. And I believe Carol's biography is the first time there's actually been a biography of him. And in this interview, she goes into lots of detail about how she did her research, how to structure a biography and the particular style that she goes with. And they also talk a lot about the ethical debates around writing about someone's life, whether they're you know alive or not with us anymore, kind of uh, how do you write a biography that respects them while simultaneously you know, digging into who they were as a person. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting line that Carol walks, and I'm sure listeners are going to have all sorts of different opinions on that. Okay, so Alice knows a lot more about Sabled than I do, so let's hand over to her talking with Carol. Thank you so much, Carol, for joining us on the Writing Life podcast today. We're going to be talking about your fantastic new biography of W.G. Max Sabald. It has been reviewed in The Observer, a spectacularly agile work of criticism, as well as a feat of doggedly meticulous research. And in The Guardian, it said Angie has presented a remarkable portrait and that your biography will no doubt make readers turn back to Sabald's four great books. I'd like to start, if I could, Carol, by asking you, could you tell us about your first experience of reading Sabald, what you read, how you felt? Yes. Well, the first book that I read, like most people, all people in English speaking countries, was The Emigrants. That was published in 1996. It wasn't his first book, as I'm sure you know, which was Vertigo, but it was the first one published. And it was sent to me to review um, by, I think it was The Spectator. And uh, I hadn't heard of W.G. Zebold, I must admit, uh, like most people, I guess. And so I just okay and I opened it up and started to read you know it was a job and uh in about two seconds I thought what is this and was absolutely amazed and captivated and then I just read the whole book the all four stories without stopping basically and, and when I finished a few hours later I couldn't believe what I had read it was the most original the most moving the most remarkable I was just blown away 
So that was my first encounter. What then happened, of course, was that I immediately decided, well, I've got to find out who this W.G. Zebald is. And um, so I persuaded a, a magazine to let me interview him. It was the Jewish Quarterly magazine. And um, they asked him and he agreed. And I think he agreed because possibly partly because it was the Jewish Quarterly. And he it actually was the first interview with him in England. And uh, so he said, yes. So I rushed up to uh, UEA and interviewed him. And it was, again, one of the most amazing experiences of my life because he was charming and funny and so gloomy. I had never met such a gloomy person, but he, he just, as, just as gloomy and pessimistic as his books. But, you know, at the same time, as I say, he made it funny. He played the gloom bucket, you know. He took his, his true disposition and turned it into a performance to amuse people with. So most people ended up thinking it was just an amusing performance. But I, from having read him, I already knew then it wasn't a performance. But I did appreciate that he put the performance on. So uh, that was it. I did the interview. And from then on, I was just completely hooked and, of course, read everything as it came out. I interviewed him again after he published The Rings of Saturn. I never published that interview because I was working on my Primo Levi biography at the time. And um, I just you know, it was too, too immersed. And of course, I never thought we'd lose him. I never thought he would die. And I couldn't speak to him again. He did die, which was a terrible, terrible shock to everybody. And uh, yeah, and then I didn't think of writing about him for years, because it was too shocking, you know. Thank you. And that was going to be my next question, actually, is where the idea for taking on this project came from, um, how, how long have you been working on it and where, where did that first idea come from? Well, as I said, I was writing my Primo Levi biography when I was interviewing him and so on. And then uh, I finished it um, in the summer of 2001, so before he died, in fact. But I was still then completely, you know, tremendously involved in that. And you know, this was obviously I had come to write about the great, the great writer of the Holocaust from the side of the Jewish victims. And um, when then when Max did die, when I finally thought, wait a minute, you know, he's the great writer of this appalling subject, among, amongst other things, of course, he wrote about other things, as we know, and we should talk about that. But at the heart of what he writes about and behind everything that he writes about is that, that appalling event. So I thought, well, you know, that is the other side of the story, as it were, and I should, I must do that. So the combination of my fascination and uh, you know, enthusiasm is a stupid word, you know, that's too, too vague and, and a small word, my huge, huge admiration for him, put, for his writing, putting those two things together meant you know, there was no choice. I, I, that's what I had to do. And of course, I have been a biographer for some, that is my profession. And um, it was clear to me that whatever, however, whatever would happen, I would have to do that. Could you give us the briefest chronology of his life in terms of the kind of the key facts, just to help us kind of have that sense of things? Right. Well, he was born in 1944. So that is right towards the end of the war. Um, in a very, you know, uh, remote little village in the Bavarian mountains, so very far from any war theatre. Um, he 
when he was about eight, his family moved to, from a village to the nearest town. So he grew up in this town, which is called Sonthofen, which is the most southerly town in, in Germany, right near the border with Austria, uh, which also brought him close to me, by the way, because my family are Austrian, so I know Austria well. He then went to university, went to the University of Freiburg in Freiburg in, in Breisgau. Uh, that was for men. And then he did this an extraordinary thing, which is the first, you know, as it were, Zebaldian move in his life, which is he left that university after two years. He didn't finish, didn't write the exams there. He finished his degree in a university in Switzerland, the University of Fribourg, where his um, sister, his elder sister Gertrude was living. He went to live with her and he finished his degree there. So that was his first move away from Germany, very important. And then at the end of that, when he got his first degree, he didn't go back to Germany, he made a further move away. And he went to, uh, came to England and came to Manchester in 1966, when he was 22 years old uh, and did an MA there and worked as a, had a job as a lector at the university while he was doing his uh, MA. And then from there, he went to his first job, which was at the University of East Anglia, which remained his career for the rest of his life. And he did his PhD there. So that was 1970, he moved to, to Norwich and that's where he then lived and taught for the rest of his life. Never returned to Germany. But one of the interesting things that I discovered in the course of my research was that he frequently attempted to return to Germany or thought of returning to Germany and tried to return several times. So his relationship to Germany wasn't black and white, naturally. It was an ambivalent, a conflictful, uh, it was a love-hate. It was a love-hate. Uh, it wasn't a hate. It was certainly not a love, but it was a love-hate. Thank you. As you say, you are a biographer. That's your your profession. And also, I think you've written books about um, writing biography and sort of, you know, guides to it. Um, many of our listeners, this is um, a podcast about the writing life and the craft of writing. Many of our listeners will be emerging writers, aspiring writers who might be interested in biography themselves. Could we sort of briefly look at your sort of process of writing a biography? This is a hugely well-researched book. You've gone to so many sources. I just I want to get a sense of how you how you kept a grip on all of that research. Did you research and then write? Did you write as you were going? Was it chronological research? Just a little bit about that process would be really interesting. Well, that process, I cannot pretend to anybody, is less than impossible. I mean, you can't do it. And the only way you can do it is just do it day by day, as all writing is. Uh, fiction as well, anything. You don't know, you don't know how or what you're writing, you know, really entirely until you write it. And as you take every step. So the, the only way I could do it was to not think about it. It was a chaotic procedure. Was it chronological? No. Uh, what I did was I contacted someone who had made a film about W.G. Zabald, a very good film about him, and in which he'd interviewed a lot of people whom I saw in the film. So I thought, well, he knows. So I asked him, contacted him, and he very kindly put me in touch with these people. So with, for example, Zebald's sister, with, uh, with uh, two of his friends from, uh, from his childhood and other friends and so on. So I just simply started that way. You know, as you go along and you accumulate the, the, the research, it does, of course, become more and more 
bulky, impossible. You do the obvious things. Everybody will know. You just make files, whether old-fashioned ones or computer ones. I used to do old-fashioned ones. I now do computer ones. And you hope and pray that you're not going to lose anything. At one point in the, my last book, um, I became so desperate because I was spent about six months indexing my research so that I would know where to find everything. You know, and in those days I had card index cards. Well, you could just do it on the computer, same sort of thing. You know, you got your files and you keep telling yourself where you've put, where everything is. Oh, you know, his father's um, uh, military career is in this interview, that interview, and that interview. But you know, I, I'd spent six months and I still didn't I hadn't cataloged everything. I thought it's impossible. So I nearly almost had a breakdown and I spoke to one of my dear biographer friends who is, you know, way ahead of me in these things, Hilary Sperling. And Hilary said to me, you simply have to give up doing this and trust yourself and trust that what you forget, your mind, your unconscious mind will be sorting. And if you forget it, it's all right, you won't need it. You'll remember what you need to remember. And I simply had to follow that advice. And I give that advice to anyone trying to do this impossible job. Whether it works, whether you're going to forget something you need to remember, I can't, I can't guarantee. I'm sure I did. You know, did I do the research first, all of it, or try to do all of it and only start the writing after? Or did I start writing as I was doing the research? Many people do do that. Either way is, is, is a perfectly valid way. I mean, there are a lot of people who start writing while they're still, you know, the research isn't finished because, of course, the research is never finished. I can't do that. I'm a sort of slightly, you know, um, anxious and anal sort of researcher and writer. So I, I didn't. I spent two and a half years researching, just doing the research and compiling my information and getting to know everybody well. And, of course, that's crucial you need to be, let come to know your, your interviewees well. They need to trust you. That takes a long time. So I patiently worked my way through two and a half years. And uh, then eventually I just, you know, you have to come to that moment then where you decide I've got to start. I mean, I could go on doing this forever. So after two and a half years, I stopped researching and I started writing at the beginning of 2017. Uh, and that's that. And then I wrote for another three years, three and a half years. So it was sort of six or seven altogether. And uh, somehow I survived. And I can't tell people how to survive. It, it's just every day at the same time in both the research and the writing is utterly thrilling and absorbing. And I wouldn't do anything else in my life, even though it's turned my hair gray and made me you know, <laughs> not a very normal person. Um, but who wants to be a normal person? Exactly, exactly. That's, that's so interesting. I think that advice to trust yourself and that you just have to hope that your unconscious mind is, is picking up the important things and remembering that they are there when you need them to be there. And just, you sort of said it yourself, you can't keep track of every single thing, but you have to hope that the things that need to be there have, have lodged have lodged in your mind it, it must have been a huge part of your life like you say for six or seven years I mean it must have kind of dominated your life I want to ask you you mentioned very early on in the um, biography I think in the second paragraph that um, there were gaps and you you're, you're upfront about that that Sabald's widow didn't want to talk to you that his daughter didn't 
and that you didn't have access to some of the material that you might have wanted access to. I think you even mentioned that you you thought that Sable himself wouldn't have wanted you to write this. Can you talk us through the kind of ethical questions you went through yourself in terms of what you were asking yourself about taking on this project and how ultimately you resolve those within yourself? Yes, well, this is a or perhaps the central question that any biographer has to ask themselves, at least if they are the biographer of a contemporary person, you see. I think obviously this doesn't arise if you're writing historical biography, you know, you're writing about Napoleon or Queen Elizabeth I or something, then that's not a problem. And of course, the best way to be a biographer or the easiest way from that point of view is actually to pick a, a subject who's been dead for centuries and has no no uh, um, descendants. That's that's the safest way. But of course, you know, I'm not a historian. I've never written historical biography. I'm interested in, I read contemporary literature, and that's my passion and interest. So that's what I've always written about. And my subjects, I've always written about subjects who've only recently died, and who therefore have surviving family. In the case of Primo Levi, was rather similar. His wife and family did not wish to speak to a biographer, so I'm afraid I've rehearsed this problem before. You can tell yourself all sorts of things, and I don't pretend that this is some sort of uh, definitive, absolutely cloudless moral reply. It's a moral dilemma. It is a moral dilemma. These, this is a, you know. Let's stick with with W.G. Zebald. His wife and his daughter are living people. By the way, it's not quite right to say that his daughter did not wish to speak to me. I don't know how she would feel about it. I did not attempt to approach her because I knew that her mother didn't want to partake. And I assumed, because I know that they're close, that they would feel the same. So, you know, that's an assumption I made that I didn't approach the daughter either. I would never want to, you know, interfere in a, in a family like that. It, it's a very important and serious question. Uh, and all I can say about it is that I completely appreciate and understand the need, the desire of families to remain complete, you know, retain their privacy and so on, and to try and protect the privacy of their family member, uh, who to them was their family member. And that's completely legitimate and an important moral right. But I don't think it's the only one. I don't think it is a, you know, clear the board, win every argument, you know, everything else has to make way. I think there are arguments on the other side. You know, biography has always, we've always looked into the to the background, the personality, the life of important, let's just stick to writers, of great writers, because it's interesting and important and illuminating to us to know where these works came from. So what some of, some of the meanings are even obscure to us if we don't know that. I think it's perfectly legitimate once somebody, of course, has presented themselves, as it were, to the public, has written something, has published it. Uh, it's legitimate to inquire into the background of it. And this is an argument that Zebald himself, of course, made because he wrote all the time about living people. That was his aim. He was a kind of biographer. He was a fictionalizing biographer, so that's rather different. I'm not allowed to fictionalize. Uh, but nonetheless, his process was, was the same. He was writing about people, and he was very, very aware you know, that he was in an even more difficult position, you might say, moral position, than I am as his biographer, because he was a German writing about Jews. And that 
you know, is a very delicate moral position. Um, and yet he, and he knew it was, and he did everything to deal with it in a delicate way. So as we know, you know, he, he never speaks for his Jewish characters. His Jewish characters speak to the narrator and the narrator reports what they're telling him. So he keeps his distance from, from the experience and doesn't claim it for himself, even on a fictional level. So he does his best to deal with it very delicately and he does deal with it delicately, but he did do it. He did mm -hmm. do it. And I do it too. <laughs> I do yeah. it too. I think it's worth doing. I think it's important to do. So I, I have small descriptions of his girlfriend, who then became his wife, earlier on when they were just girlfriend and boyfriend, and when in their early part of their marriage. But once they have a family, once the daughter is born and they have a family life, that's what they wanted to protect and keep private. And I absolutely, I never mention it. I don't mention it. I cannot mention it. And of course, readers may find, will find, this is a gap in the story. Um, it is a gap in the story. It has to be a gap in the story because of this moral compromise that I'm trying to make, which is to explore his personality as deeply as I can, his mind, his inner life. You know, the book is about, my book is about his inner life. It's, of course, I have to tell about his career and, you know, that sort of thing, those aspects of his external life, his life in the world. But what I'm really interested in and what I think readers will be interested in, readers of his work, is his inner life, his mind. And so that is what I concentrate on. And I don't even really in a way think that the gap of his marriage, which I had to leave as a gap, is all that crucial in understanding his, what I'm trying to understand, which is his creative artist's mind. Thank you. I think that's very well explained. And I, for what it's worth, agree you handle it very sensitively. As a reader of Sabled, I think many people will empathize with that, that really it's his, it's his inner mind, his motivation, um, his writing process that is of such interest to people. In writing this, you've written biographies before, as you've mentioned. Were you looking to do something different with this in the sense of, I think one reviewer has suggested you were looking to interrogate the art form of biography itself. Is that something that you were kind of thinking of in, in, in your planning? Uh, in a sense, yes. I mean, that makes it sound rather a grand procedure, you know, and, a, but, and it's not a grand procedure really as such at all. It's that I am very aware all the time of um, uh, all the difficulties, the gaps that you've mentioned, the ways in which, you know, biography, you cannot possibly tell an objective story. I mean, what is an objective story? Who can tell one? Even historians or science writers, you know, who are concentrating on very much on the facts of the matter that they're describing or writing about, even they, of course, have their particular angle of interest and vision and so on. Particularly in a biography, when you're dealing with a human being, uh, it's hugely personal. I mean, you may know, your, your listeners may know uh, that, uh, as I've said before, that I wrote previously a, a biography of, of Primo Levi, and they may know that somebody else published a biography of Primo Levi at exactly the same time as I did. He was obviously therefore researching at the same time as I was and so on, all of which was a very difficult experience for both of us. But what I wanted to say was, if people have read those two biographies, 
they will have discovered two entirely different ways of approaching the same person using the same research because we interviewed the same people not entire we're not absolutely you know there were two differences but essentially we interviewed the same people so so i'm so aware that this is my personal view and that in this particular case there were personal obstacles as you said you know certain people i couldn't speak to and so on and there were also in my case in this case very important personal um interests of mine you know i as i say i think at the beginning of my biography i uh, am the daughter of viennese jewish refugees myself in other words refugees from the nazi regime uh, which is what he's writing about and um it was very important to I me. Mean, it was one of the reasons I know that I responded so strongly to his work. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was so personal on every level that I felt that needed, that needed to be part of what the reader experienced. They needed to know. It wouldn't be right ever, and in this case particularly not right, to just present some kind of apparently objective third-person, you know, narrator kind of account. And so, and also because I couldn't, because of the gaps in the story, it was clear to me from the beginning that it was a quest biography. That's why I call it In Search of W. G. Zebel, because I don't claim to have found him, I'm only looking for him. And quest biography is a very, you know, classic and important genre, subgenre of biography. You know, one of the most famous and one of the best examples still today was the quest for Corvo, by A.J. Simmons, which was published in 1934, and uh, which is still probably the best quest biography ever written. So it's it's a genre. Uh, people tend to forget that it's a genre because I suppose it's not, you know, the most dominating subgenre of, of biography. Most biographies are probably still written in the more classic objective way which is absolutely, uh, you know, is completely legitimate and excellent way to write biography as well. I'm not in any way, uh, you know, attacking it or anything. I'm just saying that for my own personal way of writing, and in particular in this case, because of the, you know, the difficulties of the subject and the, the uh, you know, intensity of my personal engagement with it, I felt that it had to be done this way. It reads almost like a kind of mystery in a sense of you're finding clues, you're speaking to somebody who's suggesting somebody else to speak to, and you're kind of following that path. And I think that gives it a real kind of flow throughout because the reader is going on that sort of journey of discovery with you. I think that that definitely comes through. Um, another feature is throughout you, you call him Max, um, simply Max. And is, is that, I mean, it must have been a deliberate decision, but was, what was the kind of motivation behind that? Well, it's part of the same thing, isn't it, really? You know, I'm not pretending to write this kind of classic, uh, I don't know, tremendously distinguished academic, you know, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but I can't do them. That's not what I do. This is a, this is a personal quest. And I, you know, uh, met and befriended and, uh, you know, uh, now love many of his closest friends and family. So his sisters, and his early friends in, in, in Germany, and a couple of his later colleagues, people who became very close to him, uh, I am now close to myself. So it's my personal journey, this, and as you describe, I want to take the readers on that personal journey. And so I 
bring in my encounters with some of the people, um, you know, my conversations with his sister Gertrude or with, you know, I have a bit where I recount a conversation um, dialogue, put dialogue into my biography because I had a long conversation with three ladies who went to school with him, which was a very interesting and to me very funny uh, conversation in which they tried not to tell me things and they sort of told me some some very respectable lies. They didn't want to admit to some of the things that had gone on their village and they, they were being very protective and very human and very nice and very funny. And I liked them very much. And I thought this is, you know, such an example of what biographical research is like that, you know, readers should understand that it's like this minefield of people all with their own, their own agendas and, and all the rest of it. So I put in that scene and I don't know so far, no reviewer has mentioned that, but I suspect someone will at some stage and will probably say, this is outrageous. You know, imagine putting dialogue into a biography, you know, particularly into a biography of someone who never wrote dialogue himself. Um, so, well, you know, yeah, I think it was, I wanted to do it because I felt it was appropriate and right. And, and Max is part of the same thing. You know, I can't go on calling him Zebald throughout. It's also very boring to always repeat the same name. You know, it's good just as a, as a writing device. I'm saying, you know, because hoping and believing that, as you say, emerging writers of biography might be listening. It's great. What, it's very boring to be constantly repeating Zebald, Zebald, Zebald. If you can vary the name that you call the person, um, it's more interesting to read. So, so I used Max for all those reasons. That's how I think of him. Of course, I also met him, and I tell readers that I met him and knew him and found him charming and 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 uh, you know wonderful person. So, um, how can I just go on calling him Zebald like some kind of, you know, distant figure? Mm -hmm. The whole mm -hmm. point of my biography is to get closer and closer and closer to him. So to use his name. Uh, you know, seems to me part of that quest. And also, as you probably, well, as you saw, you know, he had nicknames throughout his life. So, you know, he's, when he was a boy, he was called Winfried because that was what his name was. And then when he went to his later, you know, school, high school, we might say, or secondary school, he, uh, they called him Zebe for Zebald, you know, so he was always called Zebe. He was never called Winfried. And then when he was at university, they called him, his friends there called him Koki because we would say cocky because he played the part of cocky in a play and in an O'Neill play. And then later, of course, he changed, he gave himself the name Max. So he had these, these changes of, of uh, identity. And I use those names for him uh, in the book as well. Although I don't ever call him Zebe myself, that would be peculiar because I wasn't there at the time, you know, but the people know that he had different names is a, an important part of understanding that mind of his we're talking about. That scene where you're interviewing his childhood friends, I think it's a really lovely scene. And like you say, you put in dialogue, which is unusual, but it really does bring to life the process of a biographer in terms of those real conversations that led to what you're doing. And you talk too in that about the, the moral dilemma for the people being interviewed. You know, you sort of see they're kind of wondering what to say and kind of that. And I think yes. that, that comes across comes across really well. And um, we're going to close this initial section on the process of biography um, with perhaps a personal question. The Rings of Saturn famously starts with the narrator embarking on a walk in hope of dispelling the emptiness that takes hold of me whenever I have completed a long stint of work. You've talked about how long you've been working on this project 
the research that went into it, the friends you met, how it's dominated your life for so long. How does it feel for it to be out there and in the world? Is it a relief or a loss of purpose? Or are you like the narrator in Rings of Saturn thinking about the next, the next project? All of those things, all of those things put together and mostly just terrifying. You know, it's, 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 like, I, it's like having, you know, a child, I guess, uh, and when that child first goes off to school or first walks out of your door without you, you know, or you have to leave them somewhere uh, and you know that they, they're just a person in the world and they have to deal with everything themselves. Um, I mean, I've only had one child, but I remember that very, very distinctly. So, yeah, it's, um, well, I mean, first of all, after six, seven years, uh, I am a bit of a wreck, <laughs> It's, you know, you can't imagine that you would emerge unscathed from this, um, you know, insane undertaking. Also because uh, it's so emotionally uh, entirely involving. It's not just that you're working very hard or which you do, but, you know, it's the emotional engagement. If you do, as I say, you know, the kind of biography I do, which is about contemporary people. And so therefore you are interviewing those who knew him personally which to me is always the key thing. You must get that before we all die, you know. It's, it's an, an incredibly uh, draining, but at the same time, of course, marvelously re restoring, you know. And my relationship, my friendship with those important people in his life, starting with his sister, that's the most important one. Uh, and that is now to me, that has been to me throughout a most extraordinarily sustaining relationship. She's been supportive throughout. I've sent her every chapter as I wrote it. And she has, you know, given me, um, you know, corrections and suggestions and so on, but has always been behind every chapter. And that has sustained me along the way. I, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like without that. It would have been much, 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 much harder. So what can I say? It's like life itself, you know. It's worth it. I think from, you know, the, the reader perspective, it's, it is an, even reading it is an emotional journey because of the kind of person he was and the kind of writer he was and what your research reveals about that. And it's, you know, to have written it, I can imagine it, it, it was a hugely draining, but like you say, restorative process, perhaps because in some sense you were restricted in access to certain documents which we've discussed you do you, I mean, you've read everything he's ever written in great detail you've looked at original manuscripts you've gone back and um, looked at drafts and you know that there's so much fascinating stuff about the, the drafting process and his scribbles over everything and kind of and it's, it's really interesting to see um, but your biography does read as a sort of companion to his writing and it made me want to go back and read everything he'd written all over again at the centre of his work, as you've mentioned, is this is this shock, age 17, of seeing the grainy videos of the concentration camps that we've all seen, how this contrasted with his sort of um, Catholic childhood in the, in the Alps, the, the kind of shock, not just of what had happened, but the silence surrounding it um, that he felt growing up in Germany. And like you say, he devoted his major works to making the reader feel the horror of what happened um, and perhaps making us all feel collectively responsible for just being part of a species that enabled this to happen, essentially. You, you mentioned that he said to his students whilst teaching at UEA, people lose the faculty of remembering and this is the function of literature. Could you say something about this? 
I'll start off though by saying just very quickly that it's not true to say that I that there were there was anything I had any material as it were that I had no access to, certainly written material. And that's not the case. I had access to everything. It's just that I couldn't um, quote beyond a certain legal limit because of not being authorized, you know, um, not having permission to quote. And therefore, you know, it's, so my, my access to this material, as it were, is restricted only in that sense. So, but I could, of course, um, paraphrase. This is important for emerging biographers and so on also to know that even if you're not able to quote everything, you can paraphrase. So you can convey what the person was, was writing or saying, say in a private letter, uh, of course, and even in, in published work, I could only quote the legal limit there. And I couldn't quote at all from unpublished work, private letters and so on. I could only paraphrase. He, he says in that uh, memorable moment uh, that literature is, is, is really about memory and that we, it's to make sure we don't forget. That, I think, is, is a very profound and a truth. I mean, you can say there are other profound truths about literature, probably. There's many things you could say and many things that he himself said. But that is, of course, a key thing. And it's a key thing of what he is doing. Because, as you said, you know, he grew up. Uh, with this terrible conspiracy of silence around him. This is why I call, what well, one reason, why I call my book Speak Silence, because that's what he, he wrote out of that terrible silence, which, you know, of course, affected not just him, but his whole generation. So even though, as we know, uh, you know, uh, Germany was scrupulous after the war, partly because they were forced to be by the Allies, in making sure that people knew what happened. It was written about, uh, it was, you know, there's this, was there was an official way of, uh, official program uh, to have Germans know about this. But it was an official program. It didn't, it didn't really penetrate very far, particularly in the early years. And in the first 20 years after the war, 20 years at least, people did not talk about and, and in a way, not even outside Germany, you know, people didn't talk about the Holocaust, for example, for probably a good 20 years after the war. We didn't have even the concept Holocaust. There wasn't a word for it or Shoah, among, you know, which is the proper, I guess, word, proper word for it. Um, we didn't have these concepts. Uh, it was There was a silence about that even amongst the, the victims who did not talk to their children any more than the perpetrators talked to their children because it was too traumatic, because, I mean, how, why, why would you tell a child a thing like that, you know, uh, particularly amongst the victims, it's completely comprehensible that they didn't speak. Many people didn't speak ever, died without speaking, both amongst victims and perpetrators. And this is a thing that Sebald is probably his main single theme, which is the slow emergence of trauma that people cannot and do not face trauma while it's happening. They can't believe, they can't engage with it. You know, they, it's like, I don't know whether you've ever been in it in a sort of traumatic situation. We had a terrible flood here in the village that I live in, in 2007. People may remember there were terrible floods and we had a dreadful flood here, which nearly involved my own house. And suddenly, suddenly all, you know, houses in the village had water up to like five feet. And I was standing in the middle of this five feet high flood looking at all the houses of you know, my friends and thinking, this can't be happening. This is not happening. 
it can't, this can't be true. This is like a movie or it's like, you know, seeing this on television. Uh, and so I think you don't register trauma. You, you, you know, you, your brain, your, your mind doesn't allow you to really take it in as it's happening. And it doesn't allow you to really face it very soon. And if you did face it too soon, in some ways, it would destroy you. And I think that, that uh, you know, our modern idea that we should speak about trauma very early, and it's a good thing to get people to talk. It's, it's partly a good thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. And it's not necessarily the right way to go, you know. And Zebal's theme or view uh, and vision was that, that you, people did not face trauma straight away, never could and never did. And very slowly through the course of life, it would emerge. And he, this is why he describes all of his characters in The Emigrants and also in Austerlitz, his other, not exactly Holocaust writing, but post-Holocaust writing, because it's about survivors, it's about refugees. He never actually enters a concentration camp in his work. In all of these cases, they... It's when they're older, when their prime of life is over, when they've retired and so on, that these things start coming back and overwhelming them. So that happens to Dr. Selwyn, that happens to Paul Bayreiter, that happens to Max Ferber. And then, of course, it happens classically and most, in most greatest detail and most unbearably to, in some ways, to uh, Austerlitz. So this is, this is really Zebald's subject. The, the, the slow emergence of trauma. And therefore he's, you know, he's saying that literature is about helping people to face trauma because it's bringing back memory. And it's bringing back the memory that you had to forget to survive. But this is a way of slowly uh, absorbing it in a way that you can absorb it, you know. And in um, The Emigrants, the one character who doesn't kill himself, there's, they, they all kill themselves in the end because of these terrible re-emergences of trauma. The only one who doesn't is Max Ferber. And, you know, if you ask yourself, why does Max Ferber not kill himself, although he suffers as deeply as the others? And I think the answer must be because he's an artist, because he, he's working through it. He's not directly, you know, he, it's as unconscious in a way as it is with the others, but nonetheless, he is somehow, somehow dealing with it and somehow conveying it to other people. He's sharing it. And that's what art does. And I think that's what Zebald thought art does. It's what I now think art does. It's what like Edmund Wilson told us art does, you know, with the wound and the bow and so on. There's a wound that needs to be explored and, and passed on to the reader. The reader needs to share that opening out, uh, that facing of the trauma, but in a way that you can manage it through literature. Thank you. And that reminds me of something else in your book. I think you say, in interviews, Sable often said that he started writing as a kind of way of getting out of the restrictions of academic writing. But actually, you think, you know, that was kind of one of his biggest lies. And really, it was out of this process of this period of illness and despair that he'd gone through and how writing was the kind of way out of that. We might we might say more about that in a little bit. I'm kind of proceeding as though all of our listeners have read Sabald and, and know what we're talking about. But I think for those who are new to him and who we would like to go and read his work, could you give us, and this is a, a hard thing to ask, but the, the kind of briefest summary of what is it about his actual books that is so original, kind of the, the sort of more, you know, they're not, they're not biography, they're not history. There's kind of, what is it that is, it's so, what are we talking about when we talk about his books? What are they? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that is such a good question. You know, what are his books? Ah, they're unlike any other books, as you say. And that's what Susan Sontag said when she, you know, which made him, tipped him over into great fame, you know, because she, she just said, this is, the, this is the most original. Uh, there's no, the, the, you've never read anything like this, she basically said. Well, I think it has so many, so many aspects of originality. I mean, first of all, there's the, the famous thing, you know, that is it fact or fiction? It, it, when, if you pick up a Zebald and you think you're going to read a, a novel, you know, this is going to be a normal novel, you're going to be completely puzzled and disappointed. And you're going to think, what on earth, you know? So you mustn't have that kind of expectation. He's not writing a novel. It has no dialogue. Most of his, all of his works, you know, have no dialogue. They have no classic plot. You know, the closest to, as it were, a classic novel story is Austerlitz, because at least it is. He's got one hero who is on a quest to find the truth about his background and his, what happened to his parents in the end. But, you know, even that, of course, is it's not a standard novel because it's full of these digressions about architecture, about fortresses, about all sorts of things that relate, of course, in meaning to, to the themes of the, of the work, but wouldn't be in a normal novel. And there's, as I say, there's no dialogue, no plot. There's this, he writes in great blocks of prose, which often put people off of their not expecting it, you know. We paragraph. I mean, we now, we paragraph very, very, we write short paragraphs, especially in English, you know. And, and he does none of these things. He's not the only person to do that. Thomas Bernhard wrote in these great blocks of prose. Lots of other, or not lots, but some other people do. But nonetheless, it was pretty unusual for an English reader to come across this. The other thing is that his language is so unusual, so unusual. His original language, his original German, because he wrote in German, as many people will know, he never wrote in English, uh, although, of course, he spoke perfect English and because uh, he, he lived here for 40 odd years of his life. And he worked on his own English translations. And really, they are therefore the final versions are largely produced by him. So his original German versions are also quite original and strange because He's, he writes in a, in a very old-fashioned kind of German, you know, uh, and in a very uh, unusually kind of, it has provincial, we can't convey this in, in the English translations. It has provincial sounds. You know, when a German read, person reads Zebald, they go, oh, you know, this is strange. We don't write like this anymore. They haven't written like that in Germany for, you know, I don't know, a century or more. Uh, you know, what he wanted to do was get away from the kind of German that was corrupted by Nazism. And uh, rather than therefore, I mean, you could write in a very modern way, or what he didn't do that, he wrote and he went back before Nazism, you know, to the 19th century, and wrote in a 19th century kind of way, with these strange provincial uh, kinds of tone to them, to it. And so what he did in English, in his English translations, when he was, you know, he'd give, been given an English translation by his translator, and then he would work on it and restore some of this strange, old-fashioned German sound to it. He kind of re-Germanized the English a bit and re-Zebaldized it. So it's got this sort of amusing, musing, uh, you know, uh, kind of almost circular growing, not circular, spirally growing sense of a sentence that grows and grows. And it's, it's, it's unique, you know, nobody writes like that. 
And it isn't really English. It's not the kind of English anybody speaks these days anywhere because it's so Germanized. Because German isn't really German, or at least not the way it's spoken today. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's in kind of a different universe, you know. Uh, his whole, the whole sound of what he writes, which is so striking and unique. And at the same time, of course, it's very, very beautiful. His, his language is in his landscape descriptions and his evocations of, uh, you know, distant mountainsides and clouds and spray coming off a, uh, you know, a waterfall. I mean, he's always, it, these descriptions are spectacularly beautiful. Um, and, and therefore, it's like unlike anything you will ever read. And you have to, therefore, as I say, make sure if you haven't read Zebal that you don't expect the wrong things. Because you expect the wrong things, you, you'll kind of just be puzzled. If you go, well, right, let's just see what this is and plunge into it. You know, and this is what happened to me when I first read The Emigrants, because I thought, what, what is this? This is so strange. And then as I went on, I thought, this is so beautiful. Thank you. And I think people who have read Say World will, will certainly relate to that feeling. You, you mentioned then just, what is this? And, and if you stay with it, the kind of the, the beauty that unfolds. But yeah, I think you, you, you've, I'm sure, got people who haven't read Say World to think have got to give this, a, give this a try and see what this is all about. And, and many people, after having read his work, as you talk about, talk about it as an event in their life. You know, it's not just kind of reading a book, it is an experience because it is so unique and so original for all the reasons you've you've outlined. And um, we will talk a little bit about translation in a little bit, which you mentioned there. And I thought something that you kind of um, touched on in terms of his his very old kind of um, provincial German that he uses. But he at one point, I think he mentioned that he described his ideal translator as someone with a deep memory for past generations who comes to translation by chance. And I thought that was quite um, an interesting point, but we'll look at translation in a bit more detail later. I want to just go back to um, this kind of, again, sort of looking at ethics, but this time from Sebel's point of view, um, you talk about the very close relationship you develop with Gertrude, his sister, um, lots of conversations. She spoke to you and said, um, vertigo, was a catastrophe for my mother because of the stories from the village that Sable had put into his work that she then his mother then felt that she couldn't go back because of you know people would know that the stories came from from her um and you talk about you know there's a ruthlessness in writing and that perhaps every great writer has to overcome that or decide whether they're going to overcome that and I think you also quote Sable to send to his own students to write as well as you can, it may be necessary to be ruthless. Is that something you kind of, I mean, you come across it in his work again and again. Um, and he, he goes through these kind of moral dilemmas that, you know, you talked about going through yourself in terms of the whole business of writing. I think he says at one point, the kind of the moral dilemma about the whole business of writing. Very much so. And it's something that he talked about a lot, that exercised him a lot but that nonetheless, he decided to do it. <laughs> and any writer who goes ahead and writes, does it. I mean, it's a classic, classic thing uh, that people, I mean, I shouldn't name any names, but I know a wonderful, uh, a wonderful English novelist who uh, 
is so well known for this that people say, do not invite her. So, okay, it's a woman, we know that. Uh, do not invite her to dinner because you'll be in her, in her next book in the next morning, you know, <laughs> whatever you say. So it's a battle, a struggle really between now and people alive now and people alive later, readers. Is it, is it so wrong to capture things about, now we do it all the time. I mean, it, it's it, 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 documentary films, f fiction films, people are always telling stories which they've got from life. It wouldn't be interesting if it, it you know, wasn't got from life. And telling stories and, and using the stories for other people. We do it in daily conversation. That's what we talk about all the time is what has been happening to us, to our friends, to our mutual friends. You know, we tell, oh, this has just happened to so-and-so and everybody talks about it. Is that wrong in itself? It's wrong if it's malicious, if it's used to, to, to blacken someone or undermine them or be cruel about them, you know, but in itself, is it wrong? I don't think it is wrong in itself. It's what we're here to do which is to think about, talk about, share what, what life is about, you know. <laughs> so uh, you'd have to lose the whole of literature, basically, if you thought that it was just wrong ever to tell a story about anyone. I mean, in Zembal's case, it was particularly acute in a way, more acute than in many novelists' cases, because, you know, what he was doing was effectively writing very original novels. He did what any novelist did, which he took various experiences, models from his people he knew, the things that he, he felt that was very important. You had to know the person. That's where the truth lay. And then he told their stories, but he would mix them together, you know, so that, uh, you know, the only character uh, in his writing uh, who is completely just based on one model, really, is Paul Bayreiter, who was really based on um, Zebald's primary school teacher, although he puts in, into him even large elements, bits of Wittgenstein. So even Bayreiter isn't just completely himself. So what he, you know, is he put together all his characters in a very novel, a novelist's way, of, you know, any novelist would understand his, his procedure. But in Zebald's case, I mean, of course, novelists can get into big trouble too, big trouble. I mean, I remember reading something saying that that Hanif Qureshi, every time he publishes a novel, he gets a very angry letter from his sister. Now, I don't know whether this is true, so you know, forgive me, Hanif Qureshi, if it's not true. But I read this story somewhere. You know, people get upset by by standard novels that are completely fictional. In Zebal's case, because he put those photographs in, because he deliberately made the reader feel that these are real people and you can see them here, they are that made the, re the relationship to reality, as it were, so much stronger that the people whose photographs they really, they really were of, you know, often felt, felt even more used and abused if they hadn't been asked, which they mostly weren't, than the normal. It's normal, <laughs> but it was more acute in, in Zabal's case. And I found that almost every, or perhaps every, person who felt used in that way for his work was furious, furious, <laughs> and had great difficulty about it. So, you know, the family of Dr. Henry Selwyn uh, were very upset about, about the book, about the story of Dr. Henry Selwyn, which was utterly recognizable. He portrayed that family so well that everybody who knew them, you know, recognized them instantly. <laughs> and, you know, in 
And then this story was invented about, about him, which the family didn't mind the story as such, you know, that Dr. Henry Selwyn turns out to be this refugee, Jewish refugee from Grodno, you know. And uh, he, they, they said to me, we don't mind that, you know, that he turned him into a Jew and all that, you know, because that could have been a worry, right? Some people might not have liked that. I believe them. They told me that very genuinely. But they very much minded that Zebald used uh, their his his suicide, the suicide of their father, grandfather, in that way for his story. Uh, so everybody felt furious. You know, the, the villagers of Vertach were absolutely outraged. And as you pointed out, his mother was very upset because very angry and upset because she knew that the villagers of Vertach would know that he got a lot of the stories from her and therefore that, you know, she kind of, as it were, betrayed them. So the, the women whom I describe in that encounter, that dialogue encounter, who are busy trying to kind of, you know, hide some of the village um, scandals from me and claim that they weren't true when they were true, you see. Well, they bl would blame Frau Zebald for having told this horrible boy who then wrote and told the whole world, you know, that X was an illegitimate child and B was went mad and, you know. So it's just a permanent, permanent problem in writing. Do you do, do any aspect of this? I mean, in biography, you have to do a very clear aspect of it. Tell someone's story. Is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's essential. Zabel, you mentioned, followed Wittgenstein, who begged his students not to become philosophers. And Zabel said to his students, you'll be miserable if you write and more miserable if you don't. Think carefully before you go into this business of writing and make sure you have a day job. If you'll forgive me for a moment, we often get questions that classic question writers get. What's your tips for emerging writers, aspiring writers? I've paraphrased from a section of your um, book in terms of his uh, write, writing advice for students. And this is a kind of Sabold's top tips. <laughs> so a brief oh, yeah. interlude while we go through those. He says, or you, you quote him as saying, what matters most is acute, merciless observation. Read books that have nothing to do with literature. Don't think anything is too boring to write about. Never show your work to your parents <laughs> until it's published. Don't listen to anyone, not even your teachers, and steal ruthlessly. And I think we've discussed many of those, um, the kind of the, the motivation behind many of those tips in, in our conversation. I'd like to quickly look at translation, um, which is obviously, there's so much to say about translation in terms of Sabel's work. He uh, founded the British Centre for Literary Translation at UEA in 1989, which is still thriving today, um, welcoming emerging literary translators from all over the world each year for its summer school. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of the BCLT secretary, Beryl Renwell, in his work? Which Could you talk about that in really nice detail? Well, it's a fascinating tale, really. Um, you know, when you quoted earlier on his saying that the ideal translator is somebody, you know, with a, a long memory for the way people used to speak. And he also said, with a good general education, in other words, not a university one, he was implying. The person he was really describing was Beryl Ranwell, his secretary. She was his ideal translator, and she was indeed one of his translators. So he had, of course, official, real translators. Michael Hulse, who was the translator for his first three works of prose, and then uh, Anthea Bell, who translated uh, Austerlitz, 
and, and other works of his like um, uh, The Natural History of Destruction. Um, and yet what he would always do was he treated their translations, particularly um, Michael Hulse's, as drafts, as drafts. And he then reworked them intensively himself. So what he would do, which he describes in an interview, and even though I pick up many places in interviews where he's teasing the interviewer and telling them porkies, uh, including me, of course, when I interviewed him, he told me more porkies than almost anybody else I discovered, which was rather disconcerting. But in this case, I think he was completely telling the truth. He said, you know, what I do is I get the translator's version, I work on it myself, and then I take it to Beryl. Because Beryl, of course, being a native English speaker, uh, has an ear for English that I don't have. And she, we go through it together. And then I, you know, that produces the final version. Uh, it was not true that he didn't have an ear for English. He did. But nonetheless, Beryl Ranwell was extremely important to him. I think she gave him confidence, she supported him enormously, and she probably did indeed make quite a few suggestions which he took on board. It is impossible to say exactly how many or how, because I have seen, which is very fascinating and wonderful, and they've now been deposited in the UEA you know, uh, library in the, in the Zebal papers, her typescripts, the typescripts, his typescripts that she worked on with him. I think that in, in, in translation, there are two kind of poles of translation, you know, one which holds that the translation should render the original in all of its, the sound of the original somehow, the quality of the original. And the other one which says the translation should produce a beautiful version of the original in the new language. And Anthea Bell was very much of the first school. You know, she was very keen to retain the actual sound, sentence formation and so on of Zebal's work. Uh, and therefore he, whereas Michael Hulse was more of a sort of Englisher, he Englished Max, you know, he turned him into flowing English sentences, very beautiful ones. And Max, that's why Max had to work more on, on felt he had to work more on Hulse's translations because he wanted to, restore the, the original sound, the sound that was in his mind of these, as I say, you know, clause by clause unfolding, unpacking sort of German sentences. So uh, uh, he would take Hulse's translations and work on, changed, he rewrote, you know, every line quite, you can see in his typescripts. And then, you know, in some cases, he, he, you could see things that in the typescripts that Beryl wrote, in Beryl Ranwell's handwriting. You can see this word put in. And then at one point, which I reproduce in my, in my book, because I thought it was so touching and, and so telling, uh, she actually, because she was a secretary and she wrote in, in shorthand. So she put in a whole load of stuff in shorthand, which of course I can't read. I don't know what it means, but <laughs> shows how much work she did. She did an enormous amount of work there. She had notebooks like, like Max's own notebooks. She went over the sentences with as much attention as he did. The only trouble is, as I say, is you, you know, you see that there's a word in, 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 in Beryl's handwriting, and then you look at the final text and that word is in the text. But did it come from Beryl only, or was this something that she discussed with Max? Did it come from him and she, you know, well, there's no way we can really tell to how much 
of her writing is just her own ideas of translation. So we'll never quite know. Alas, Beryl died in 2013. That's a year before I started my research. So I missed Beryl. Sadly, I would have loved to know her and I would have loved to know the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, We won't know the answer to that question. It's one of the gaps, but certainly she contributed a lot. Max said she did. Max said that she, you know, a lot of it came from her. And, and, in, in, and indeed, as I point out in my book, uh, Harville Press gave, sent her a check, Beryl, for 1,000 pounds after the translation of um, The Rings of Saturn. And I mean, a publisher to send 1,000 pounds to you know, someone like that, they must have been convinced by Max that she did an enormous amount of original work. So that was Beryl Rimewell, you know, this extraordinary woman who was secretary in the department, first in the German department, and then secretary to BCLT, secretary to Max, an enormously important person to him, I think. She supported him hugely. She cheered him up enormously. She was a very, very, you know, the opposite of him. Emotionally open, friendly, sociable, happy person. And I think he, he, she made his life at, in, in UAA a lot easier than it might otherwise have been. Not because, you know, it was a gloomy place, but because he was a gloomy person. And she cheered him up. But she did this very, very important work, which we'll never quite know how much, but it, it's important for his translations. Thank you. That's so interesting. I think you, you talk really um, beautifully with through examples of his three main translators, as well as Beryl and her role, about what you say about these two schools of thought in terms of translation, which you, you which you acknowledge is, is a simplification for this mm. rendering the work as beautifully as possible um, in the new language or conveying the original as closely as possible. And I think that's a really interesting discussion on that in your work. Turning now to UEA, um, so the National Centre for Writing is based here in Norwich, so we're obviously particularly interested in his work. You, you talk about UEA, and he obviously was teaching there for over 30, 40 years. You describe it in the kind of early days, it was one of the new universities as kind of, I, th I think some of you quote describes it as in the best sense anarchic, <laughs> and I think kind of how that suited Zaylan's sort of um, kind of anti-establishment kind of mindset but I wondered and this might be a bit of an indulgence for me living in Norwich working in Norwich but how do you think Norwich and Norfolk influenced his writing how were they important? I think that Norwich and Norfolk in the early days in particular suited him enormously he had come from the edge of a country you know he, as I say where he grew up was right on the border with Austria, right at the end of Germany, really. And he was, it's very close to Austria and in a lot of it's, you know, in the building and in, in, in some aspects of the food and so on. When I got there, I recognized it. So he lived in this sort of borderland place. And, you know, Norwich and Norfolk are very like in, in that sort of way. I mean, not entirely, of course, but in important ways, rather like that. You know, there it's, it's, it's a sort of edge land, really. You know, after Norwich, there's an after Norfolk, there's there's the North Sea, you know, uh, and uh, and it's it wasn't when he got there in the in 1970. Don't forget. So for the first 10 years, at least, or into the 19 into the mid 1980s, even it was quite a remote, quite. I mean, you know, there'd been the, the railway, but that had been, you know, beachinged. And so basically there were just it wasn't well served by roads in those days. And it was really quite a remote, rural uh, old-fashioned place uh, and it suited him down to the ground and he 
always wanted to find in landscape, as in, as in everything. He wanted to find memory. He wanted to find the past. You know, and he said that, that the past was absolutely vividly preserved in the landscape of Norfolk. Whereas one, one of his great complaints about Germany was always that the landscape was, it, it, it didn't have a trace of memory in it. The memory was destroyed. Buildings in Germany were rebuilt you know, with each generation, they didn't, they didn't value, you know, the old buildings that the way we do in England, you know, no, what the aim was always to modernize, to modernize, you see, and partly this has to do with wanting to forget, of course. And he was very struck and happy with the way in which he felt that Norfolk was remembering. So uh, I think it was the right place for him. It became, of course, less that with time, it became a more joined up you know you wouldn't say it about Norfolk now but of course you know uh, still in some ways it's still geographically at the end of somewhere not 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 in the middle of somewhere you know and Norwich is still a one of the best preserved medieval centers in Britain uh, which he which he I think you know obviously he loved that as well so I think it was very very important in his formation indeed and he was happy there for a long time, or as happy as he could be. He was never happy. <laughs> Let's admit, you know, happiness and Zebal don't go together only for very brief moments. But, as, you know, for a place for him to live, it was the best sort of place. And of course, he lived in a very beautiful house, a beautiful place, which he had restored entirely, largely with his own hands, he and his wife together, uh, and, and made this beautiful, the old rectory in, in Pouring Land. Um, so he lived in a kind of English idyll in a kind of way. And uh, that was, of course, surprising to me, and to all of us, I guess, you know, in a way. And I found out that there was sort of root to it. When I went to Wyndham uh, to see the family of Dr. Selwyn, who still live in the house that he describes, uh, he puts it in Hingham, but it's not in Hingham, really. It's really in Wyndham. And the moment I saw that house and its great garden park, really, because it is, I mean, it's not a grand house, but it's not a great house, but it's a very beautiful old manor house, really. And I just thought this is, this is his first encounter with this aspect of England, which he must, must have spoken to him deeply because he always loved places that had retained most history, you know. And that house did, and it was a quiet, peaceful, beautiful place. And I thought, this is what he tried to recreate <clears throat> in his own home, and did recreate in his own home. And the garden in particular, he was particularly, he was a very good gardener, and he created a beautiful garden there. So we'll be nearing the end of our conversation um, by early August 2000. Um, Sable had finished his last great work, Austerlitz. He told his most trusted friends, you say, that it was a complete failure. Um, that kind of gloomy sentiment coming through again. Um, we, the reader, of course, know differently. He died in 2001 um, from suspected heart failure whilst driving in his, near his home in Norwich. And since his death, he has become even more revered, you know, widely recognised as one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. You write that he is a historian, a biographer and an autobiographer. But beneath this, he is at his heart a visionary and a mystic. This is why there is no one like him in modern literature. You say he turns his experience, his reading, into writing so beautiful it breaks your heart. 
and that his writing opens up vistas of such beauty and intensity as life itself is scarcely able to provide. I wonder, Carol, about giving the last word to Max um, and if you would like to perhaps to read a short passage from his work that elucidates this, this beauty that you describe. Yes, I would be very, very glad to. Thank you for asking. Um, I'd like to read, I mean, there's so many to, places to choose from, but uh, as I've said, The Emigrants is my favorite really of all his books. And my favorite story in The Emigrants is really Dr. Henry Selwyn. That was the first one that blew me away uh, all those many years ago. So I'd like to read just the ending, the last part of Dr. Henry Selwyn. And uh, just to, you know, say what, uh, to set it up a little bit, obviously, uh, they, the, the narrator has befriended Dr. Selwyn, who was his landlord. And uh, Dr. Selwyn has finally, very late, revealed this background of his, uh, that he is a Jewish refugee, really. And he's also revealed that the most, one of the most important relationships in his life was where, when he was very young, was with a, um, a Swiss mountain guide with whom he climbed um, high peaks in Switzerland. And those were amongst his happiest times in his life. And this was a happy relationship. And that, that uh, mountain guide uh, died had an accident, you know, fell into a glacier and died, and then 1914 disappeared. So now I'll read just the last page of um, Dr. Henry Selwyn. When we received the news, I had no great difficulty in overcoming the initial shock. But certain things, as I am increasingly becoming aware, have a way of returning unexpectedly often after a lengthy absence. In late July, 1986, I was in Switzerland for a few days. On the morning of the 23rd, I took the train from Zurich to Lausanne. As the train slowed to cross the Aar Bridge, approaching Baum, I gazed way beyond the city to the mountains of the Oberland. At that point, as I recall, or perhaps merely imagine, the memory of Dr. Selwyn returned to me for the first time in a long while. Three quarters of an hour later, not wanting to miss the landscape around Lake Geneva, which never fails to astound me as it opens out, I was just laying aside a Lausanne paper I'd bought in Zurich when my eye was caught by a report that said the remains of the Bernese Alpine guide, Johannes Negeli, missing since September 1914, had been released by the Oberaar Glacier 72 years later. And so they are ever returning to us, the dead. At times they come back from the ice more than seven decades later and are found at the edge of the moraine, a few polished bones and a pair of hobnailed boots. Carol and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the Writing Life podcast. Speak Silence in Search of W.G. Sebald, published by Bloomsbury, is available to buy now, and I urge you to do so. It's a, a fantastic companion to Sebald's own writing and a wonderful piece in its own right. Um, for those who haven't read Sebald, you have that luxury still to come. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for listening and thanks to Carol and Alice for joining us on the podcast. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out more about the podcast, view all our past episodes, as well as our events and workshops at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk.
As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please consider making a donation by heading over to the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking on the support us button. Please do subscribe to the podcast, rate it and give us a lovely review because it helps other people to find us. We had a lovely review come in last week. Yeah. Calm and informative. Welcome to the Calm and Informative podcast. Yes. Words that have not been used to describe either of us in the past. No. But much appreciated. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.